The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The space really runs the gamut from large defense contractors to uh, spyware companies like NSO to individual uh, startups filled with, you know, five to 10 researchers. So <laughs> it's all under this larger umbrella of people who are going to make money off of breaking into systems. And again, some of these people will self-regulate and only sell to the U.S. government or Five Eyes or do a lot of due diligence in order to make sure that none of their products are being abused. And some of them really don't care and actively invite some of the sketchier contracts out on the market. I'm Eugenia Dohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 31st, 2023. On March 27, the Biden administration issued an executive order on prohibition on use by the United States government of commercial spyware that poses risks to national security. The executive order, as the title says, limits executive departments and agencies from using commercial spyware if they determine that its use would present a counterintelligence or security risk to the United States, or if it poses significant risks of improper use by a foreign government or person. To talk about the new executive order and its impact, I sat down with Winona the Sombri Burnson, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. We talked about why this executive order is a welcome development, how spyware companies might adjust their behavior in response, and what remains to be done to limit the misuse of these technologies. It's the Lawfare podcast for March 31st, Biden's executive order on commercial spyware. A quick update before we start. A day after we recorded this conversation, a series of related initiatives were announced at the Summit for Democracy. To cover that development, we have recorded a short addendum to the podcast, included at the end of the episode. So stay tuned. Before we talk about the executive order on spyware, I wanted to ask you if you could maybe place this development in context, right? In particular, I think it would be useful to have a sense of, you know, how the spyware industry is structured, what are the current incentives at play? Before we talk about the EO, so in terms of a brief breakdown of the industry in general, I want to start out with the privatization of cyber operations. So in order to conduct a cyber operation, say you want to spy on someone by hacking their phone, you need four separate things. First, you need a way to bypass the phone security. 
for laptops, you could try to convince people to click on a phishing link, which people get trained not to do all the time, but sometimes do anyway. <laughs> for phones with the latest security update, though, you'll need a zero-day vulnerability. So that's a flaw in the phone software that either Apple or Google uh, or Huawei, if there's any listener on here that has a Huawei phone, <laughs> hasn't found yet. But then somebody will use this vulnerability in the software, uh, exploiting it to get past the security safeguards. The second thing you need is spyware to install on a phone. So that's usually what re people re will refer to as hacking tools. The third thing you need is infrastructure, like a server somewhere to send commands to the spyware, like turn on this person's camera, collect all of their messages, send it back, tell me who their contacts are. And then finally, you need at least one person who's trained to use all of these things to conduct the operation itself. Most governments don't have all four of these components. And even when they do, it's hard to hold on to them. So what if Apple finds the vulnerability you're stockpiling and patches it? Then you have to go find another one. What if your infrastructure gets found out by the adversary government you were spying on? Time to burn it down and spin up some new servers. And what if the uh, Air Force cyber operator you have is tired of working for the military and decides to make three times as much money in the private sector? Better start training some new recruits. So building and deploying these capabilities is both difficult and expensive. And this is where cyber uh, mercenaries or spyware companies come in. Western governments absolutely purchase spyware and vulnerabilities from private organizations. Some of the largest US government contractors uh, have cyber offerings and Western governments have used these tools you know, with proper judicial oversight to hack into terrorist networks, get intelligence on mass shootings and even apprehend El Chapo. Some of these companies sell one or more parts of these capabilities. So just the zero day vulnerabilities, just the spyware, just the training even for, for these operators. But others like NSO, more end-to-end -end spyware companies, bundle them all up together in an end-to-end -end spyware solution. So it's like a commercial piece of software. You pay uh, NSO Group a licensing fee for a year, and they train you how to use the product, and it's practically point and click. Now, governments have realized that regulating this space is not just about the technology itself. It's not about the tool, but about how clients use and abuse the tools, how governments or even corporations <laughs> use and abuse these tools. So authoritarian governments have used these tools not just to spy on the US and allies, but also to surveil journalists and activists in the name of national security, um, leading to their uh, torture, detention, or even assassination. Commerce Department put a few of these companies whose tools have been found on civil society targets like NSO Group's Pegasus on the entities list, uh, which basically prevented all U.S. tech companies from exporting products to them and pushed them nearly to bankruptcy. But in addition, it's not just about a singular tool or even the end use, but the combination of these tools together into one single offering that makes end-to-end -end spyware companies like NSO Group so dangerous. Um, and that's what the executive order specifically targets, uh, the end-to-end -end software suite furnished for commercial purposes. Because, you know, NSO Group is a mid-sized enterprise, like 750 people were employed by them in, in 2021. And what they do is they sell authoritarian governments a signals intelligence unit in a box, uh, basically giving other governments who couldn't spy on people the capability to do so um, with the click of a button and add to cart. Um, so something that we hear a lot in this context, and I think the executive order also brings it up, is the risk posed by proliferation of commercial spyware. So is this proliferation exactly what you just mentioned? What does exactly mean in this context? Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly what it means in this context. When we're talking about proliferation, we're talking about the increasing 
availability of these tools to governments who couldn't previously get them. So the growing availability of end-to-end spyware solutions basically is going to give a government who couldn't spy on the U.S. before the capability to do so um, simply by reaching out to a company who's willing to sell to them. Simply the availability of these tools when previously governments would have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building up their own internal intelligence capabilities, they can now simply purchase through a a government contract. So the executive order comes to be in the context, I think recent reports show that at least 50 US government personnel were targeted by spyware. But like accounts of how spyware has been misused, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, misused to target journalists, activists, political opponents, a whole lot of other people, those have been around for a long time. So what do you think changed? And, you know, why now? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Eugenia. The Availability of hacking tools has been a a problem for a long time. I think that what's changed is a concerted shift in focus from the tool itself to end use and abuse. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I mean. So governments worldwide have tried to regulate spyware before, back in 2013, just as a technology. Um, so proposed language in the Wassenaar Arrangement, uh, which is a a large export control uh, multilateral agreement, uh, included the words intrusion software, but a lot of intrusion software actually has legitimate use. So for example, the penetration testing industry in the United States, their entire business model is based on breaking into companies with their consent so that client companies can figure out what's wrong with their security and fix it. That's over a billion dollar industry in the United States. And it's also one of the most effective ways to figure out how to make your products and organization more secure. And on top of that, 2013 was a very different time in the United States when you think about the U.S.'s relationship with security researchers, hackers, hacker activists or or hacktivists. Um, So a lot of security researchers with best intentions would use these tools to try and let companies or organizations know like, hey, you have this security vulnerability, maybe you should fix it. And companies and governments would end up either trying to sue them or putting it, put them in jail. So the Wassenaar style regime against spyware as a technology still exists in some form. But thanks to pushback from the security industry and also uh, cybersecurity researchers back in 2013 to 2017, there's a lot of carve outs that protect these researchers. So how has this changed from the tool regulation to end use and abuse? Honestly, I have to say that it's a decade of civil society campaigns. I want to give a shout out to the Citizen Lab's incredible reporting, talking specifically about NSO, but also Intellexa and some other coalitions that are coalitions of companies profiting off of human rights abuses, basically, (laughs) and bringing those sorts of concerns to light. I'll also say that three years ago, you also started to see big tech and other cybersecurity companies sounding the alarm of growing abuse of these tools by government organizations. And I think that those two factions together helped governments slowly wake up to the national security implications of this issue as well. Um, So the primary shift in strategy is that the U.S. isn't just focusing on the dual-use nature of these technologies, but also realizing that the problems are being caused by bad 
organizations or bad business choices or bad governance choices and not just the the technology itself. So let's move on to discuss the executive order. Tell us, what does it do? Yeah. (laughs) So the executive order does one thing, basically. It prevents U.S. agencies from operationally using or acquiring commercial spyware when they find that the company that the spyware comes from or the spyware itself poses a counterintelligence risk to the U.S. or that there's a major risk that foreign governments will use that spyware to violate human rights or target any U.S. citizen which is a a big red line. Um, And it does this by basically putting due diligence requirements on all government acquisition through the Federal Acquisitions Regulations, or the FAR, and tasking ODNI to monitor the space. Um, This was actually hinted at uh, within the NDAA for fiscal year 2023. The ODNI was actually given this power to prevent any part of the IC from procuring some foreign spyware. And the EO specifically provides some language for how spyware companies can conduct due diligence in order to make sure that they're not bidding for government contracts only to get denied. Um, So it tells them to go through the annual country reports on human rights practices for the Department of State to see if any of their end clients engage in systemic human rights abuses um, or making sure that they have technical guardrails to prevent spying on U.S. citizens. Um, the, The EO also has language on how to mitigate that if the spyware company finds some concerning clients and wants to keep U.S. contracts. So like canceling the contracts of concerning clients or working more closely with the U.S. government on counterproliferation efforts, whatever that means. So how do you think the executive order changes the incentives for, for these companies? How, how do you think we'll see them adjust? Yeah, I think that it's interesting that you say the word incentive, because I think that immediately what's going to happen is that it shrinks the pool of potential suppliers the U.S. is going to work with at all. And for those suppliers on the cusp, um, like those who are already working with the United States or really, really want those U.S. government contracts, but also have potential foreign government contracts or government contracts that they know have concerning end use, they're going to have to fundamentally make a decision of, am I going to say no to contracts in other countries so that I can work with the U.S., or is that not worthwhile? Or am I going to have to somehow get closer to the United States government and their counterproliferation efforts to mitigate some of these concerns that the potential contract holder might have? Do you think that that's enough? Do you think that the you know potential for U.S. government contracts is going to outweigh, you know, the considerations for the companies that are, as you said, already benefiting from human rights abuses. So it's a great point that you bring up. And I'm pretty skeptical about this because this is relying on an assumption that the U.S. market is big enough and attractive enough that some foreign end-to-end spyware firms are going to voluntarily reorganize their business practices. Fundamentally, if you want a U.S. contract now, something pretty lucrative and stable once you get it. You can't let your tool be used to spy on U.S. citizens, or if you let this happen, you need a seriously good relationship with the U.S. government or other really good reasons for letting this happen. But if the U.S. cyber defense industry is any indicator, lots of countries want to spy on the U.S., even some of our allies. So companies in friendly countries are going to have to make that decision as well. Like, am I going to call out or mitigate the risks 
that the U.S. government is asking for when I have all of these other client countries. I think it really depends on how many other countries are willing to partner with the United States on this and how many are going to continue doing business as usual. Because when you look through some of the State Department lists uh, that the, the executive order mentions for due diligence, there are quite a few European countries, East Asian countries that the United States works with and partners with our treaty allies that do conduct human rights abuses <laughs> or conduct uh, espionage against the United States. So this is a really small circle that the United States is drawing for companies that are going to want to continue to bid for, for U.S. contracts. And it's a really, really big market out there um, that other spyware companies can continue to just try to pursue in lieu of those U.S. government contracts. So are you saying that this could be read as a protectionist measure by the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I think that fundamentally, this is going to limit the number of firms that can bid for these contracts very easily. Um, and most of them are going to be based in the U.S. And that brings up a whole different set of problems around workforce, actually. The Office of the National Cyber Director will be putting out a workforce strategy soon. But given that there's an over, I think, 3 million uh, now a cybersecurity workforce shortage in the U.S., it's uncertain whether or not we'll be able to continue providing the capabilities at the pace necessary uh, for the U.S. government just domestically. So you hinted at this before you talked about due diligence, but I, I want to go a bit deeper into maybe some of the processes that the executive order outlines. So for example, how is the U.S. government supposed to know or determine that the conditions are given to like prevent a particular vendor? Fundamentally, the way that this will work from an implementation perspective is likely going to be that the ODNI is going to create lists of classified reporting that makes an assessment of how risky some of these end-to-end -end spyware companies are to work with. And I actually think that putting this within the intelligence community is a really good measure because fundamentally, one of the biggest problems facing the spyware industry, or rather the people who track it, are that these companies will, once called out, will reform and regroup, kind of like traditional mercenary companies, in fact. Uh, so for example, there's quite a few companies out in India, uh, App and Security, uh, where they were called out for spying uh, and conducting uh, government-sponsored espionage, and they have splintered off and reformed and regrouped multiple times over the last 10 years. And one of the NSO subsidiary founders, uh, Tal Dailin, he's also been found to have created two more of these companies since being called out for his first one. So putting this under ODNI and, and and putting this within the intelligence community might actually benefit uh, overall acquisition due diligence processes on the government side, because even if a concerning company shutters its doors and a new one with all of the exact same staff uh, pops up and claims to be entirely legitimate, Odie and I would be able to theoretically track that and make sure that those companies don't, by some form of accident, get government contracts. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, we have the executive order. What other instruments are there available, if any, in the U.S. or elsewhere that are trying maybe to do something similar to curb this misuse? Is is that a trend that you're seeing? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's two other primary efforts within the US, uh, one of which I've touched on before, which is kind of export control entities listing uh, coming out of commerce. And the other is coming through DOJ, where the commerce department handles the entities list and export control, and basically make sure that there aren't any U.S. spyware companies that are selling to concerning end users without a waiver or an exemption and also preventing bad players in this space like NSO Group, like uh, there are some other companies, Positive Technologies, CoSync, from getting U.S. goods. Uh, So that's one measure that the U.S. has put forward and is implementing at the moment. Uh, And the DOJ is ensuring that former U.S. government personnel who have been trained uh, within the U.S. intelligence community ensuring that they don't unlawfully transfer the skills and the training that they learned in their employment to become mercenaries for the highest autocratic bidder, so to speak. Uh, And Commerce and DOJ actually work pretty closely together with this new digital technology strike force uh, to make sure that all of these initiatives are getting implemented and enforced correctly. From the EU side, there's currently the PEGA Commission, uh, which is a months-long investigation into the threat of these spyware companies, where they are, and what some of the EU member states have been doing or not doing (laughs) to curb this sort of threat. Uh, It's one of the the most public policy-oriented conversations around spyware. I highly recommend anyone interested in this space to to take a look at some of those documents. But fundamentally, um, underpinning all of this are concerted efforts from civil society and tech companies and detection and response groups. So, so much of this industry, uh, the spyware industry, has been revealed by the hard work of these civil society and technology organizations whose researchers are at the very forefront of this problem and protecting real targets of, of these cyber operations. I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was about to ask you about the newly released principles by the Cybersecurity Tech Accord that also happened this week. So as far as I understand them, these principles are supposed to limit the market for the companies that I think they call cyber mercenaries. So what's the impact of this initiative? And how does it complement the executive order, if at all? 
Yeah, so I think it absolutely complements the executive order. I think that the scope here is broader. They say cyber mercenaries, which is a much broader term of, um, you know, privatized cyber capabilities. So again, going back to the, you know, just one tool or two of the tools and not the entire uh, end-to-end suite, which is what the executive order focuses on. It also talks more about frontline tactical implementation of this. So particularly issuing cease and desist letters or taking other lawful action, which can be anything from filing a lawsuit like Apple and WhatsApp did against NSO, uh, or even uh, just booting these abusers off of their platforms. I also think that they do call out that they're going to start developing processes for handling valid legal requests for information, which uh, hints to governments that they're also looking for more proper judicial review of government intrusion into personal privacy or personal lives. So maybe can you tell us a bit more about these cyber mercenaries? Uh, You already explained how this is different from the type of companies that the executive order tackles, but maybe tell us a bit more about what they offer and why they're a concern. Sure. So when I say cyber mercenaries and when other people in this space say cyber mercenaries, we're not just talking about the end-to-end software suites that NSO Group creates. That's kind of an all-in-one solution that is very easy to use, can just be plugged in and played. That's kind of at one of the most comprehensive sides of the spectrum. At the very other side are five or six-person companies, startups even, that are providing training or vulnerability research or uh, spyware development for governments. So the space really runs the gamut from large defense contractors to uh, spyware companies like NSO to individual uh, startups filled with, you know, five to 10 researchers. So (laughs) it's all under this larger umbrella of people who are going to make money off of breaking into systems. And again, some of these People will self-regulate and only sell to the U.S. government or Five Eyes or do a lot of due diligence in order to make sure that none of their products are being abused. And some of them really don't care and actively invite some of the sketchier contracts out on the market. So when big tech or civil society organizations focus on cyber mercenaries, they're largely focusing on individual companies that are going to abuse platforms or break into uh, software to conduct abusive activities on somebody's phone or device or use that intelligence to action on the particular concerning human rights abuses that are in the news right now. Great. Thank you for, for drawing that distinction. That is that is really helpful. So what would you say are some of the other maybe tools that could be used. I I know that you recently wrote for us about expert controls and how they are only one aspect of, you know, how we should be thinking about it. So what else would you suggest the administration should be doing and, and under which authorities or using which mechanisms? Yeah, certainly. So I I think the title of that piece was export control isn't a magic bullet for cyber mercenaries. I also don't think that the FAR is a magic bullet for cyber mercenaries. Frankly, I I think this 
EO, this executive order, could have done so much more. It doesn't mention the U.S. financial institutions that fund these foreign companies, which to me feels like an obvious next step. It also doesn't address the wider part of the cyber mercenary market. The end-to-end spyware solutions are arguably some of the most concerning, but there are plenty of other uh, problematic actors in this space. And even huge companies like NSO Group's or other end-to-end spyware providers buy parts of these capabilities and tools from smaller firms to bundle into their systems. So it's a huge contractor, subcontractor market that we're dealing with. And the EU also doesn't address the elephant in the room, which is that in order for counterproliferation to work, you need a multi-stakeholder regime of countries that respect human rights. So this was put out days before the Summit for Democracies, and and we're recording this right now uh, before the Tech and Human Rights Day of that summit uh, hosted by the State Department. So I'm I'm really looking forward to what State has to say on the topic. So let's talk about that a bit more because that was literally my next question. Oh, incredible! Uh, in, the, in the background, <laughs> we have the Second Summit for Democracy. So you know, you're saying we're hoping to hear more about what the State Department will do. Do you think that? this initiative will be brought up, that there's going to be an attempt? And if so, what that does look like? And maybe more like, what do you hope it looks like? Sure. I I think it's absolutely going to be brought up. The executive order is actually linked on the Summit for Democracy website at the moment. So So I'm hoping that there is uh, some overlap and it looks like there likely will be. I think fundamentally what we need is to get other countries to follow suit. Um, The FAR and and our own domestic acquisition process is a unique beast, and the U.S. is a sizable market, but it's really going to be important to ensure that other countries get on board with this regime. Um, But there are a lot of countries with high levels of offensive cyber talent like Israel that may not, especially considering how much some of these countries rely on either surveillance diplomacy efforts or getting revenue from from a variety of different sources. So figuring out how to create a multilateral set of of partnerships around technology, responsible cyber operations, and respecting human rights within the larger surveillance sphere is going to be crucial. And I think that there are quite a few discussions tomorrow that are going to uh, touch on that. So you bring up something that I find particularly interesting, which is with many of these initiatives, usually in like the digital space, you hear people say that other countries need to be convinced to follow the initiatives that the United States is, you know, advancing. And that can be tricky, right? Especially when maybe these initiatives don't necessarily reflect what are the national security or other priorities that different governments have. So how do you see this approach like being received by other countries? Do you think it reflects similar concerns or are people going to be like, well, this is all very nice, but as a government that, you know, will struggle <laughs> to develop these capabilities, we actually do need to rely on on the private sector and this doesn't really work for us. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Eugenia. I think fundamentally, there are certain things that work for a US-focused policy solution to this problem. And I think that the FAR is one of those approaches. But just towards your previous point, there are plenty of different countries, even within the EU, that 
consider domestic security as part of national security. And some uh, EU countries have domestic surveillance that they justify under the, the broader banner of national security. So fundamentally, there are countries like that that I don't think are going to receive this very well. I also think that when the U.S. has put this out, it's been in the wider context of these EU-focused investigations on and through the PEGA Commission. So this is fundamentally not a portable model that the EU can bring in precisely because they're A, not as large of a market, and B, may rely quite heavily on these tools, and C, don't have the domestic talent to, to backfill it. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not this model is ported if the EU countries will find some way to make as strong of a statement. Uh, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, uh, but what matters is that they will be standing together to try and combat this problem at the same type of level. Speaking of porting, and maybe let's move you know, it completely in the other direction from the international stage to the local level, right? Because the executive order, unless I'm very confused, does not apply uh, you know, at the state and local level, right? Yep. <laughs> so, and and I think that's where a lot of the challenge actually relies. You have maybe local law enforcement that is also contracting uh, with these with these companies. Do you think that that you're going to see, I don't know, this order as a template, or or is it not going to apply? I think the executive order will give state and local activist organizations that are already trying to push back on state and local police and law enforcement using these sorts of tools, the ammunition that they need to address this problem at a state and local level. Fundamentally, yes, there are still going to be concerns with various police organizations contracting with concerning spyware firms. But when you look at the budget for a LAPD contract versus a DOD year-long contract, the numbers are just vastly different. So I think that, yes, it's a problem, but the US NSC did what it could with the authorities that it had to make a large impact. And I think that just because there's another problem, we shouldn't discount how big a red line this is. So on that note, you know, this executive order is a red line. It is a you know great step forward. But as you said, this is not perfect. There are things that you wish were there that are not. It's not a silver bullet. So what would you point to as the next areas that need to be addressed? Yeah, so I think there are some really important challenges that the U.S. is going to have to face because of this executive order. And some of them I've already said kind of smattered throughout our recording today. The first is going to be getting other countries to follow suit. Like I said, you need multilateral approaches to this sort of problem. And economic-based approaches really only work if you have friends. You see that in export control, where it's been largely plurilateral and multi-nation uh, stakeholders working together. Like the US export controls of semiconductors against China definitely won't work without buy-ins from the Netherlands and Japan, for example. And so whereas in export control, they prevent potential buyers from the U.S. market, here what the U.S. Do has done is restrict potential sellers. 
So because the problem with this is that there are plenty of other markets, the U.S. needs more markets, more friends, more partners to bring on board with this endeavor. Otherwise, and this is why I say this is risky, is without those partners, this falls apart. Uh, And the spyware contingent of companies will continue to grow and U.S. persons will continue to get spied on and human rights abuses will continue to happen. So that's the biggest concern and challenge. The next is the U.S.'s internal supply. So domestic technology acquisition. So just like in any emerging technology, it's so hard for smaller U.S. companies to get DOD contracts. So if the U.S. is going to intentionally restrict the number of companies that can apply and get these government contracts, the U.S. also has to make sure that we have a domestic supply. And currently, I don't see very many U.S. offensive security companies in the DOD accelerator programs or in DIU initiatives or in InQtel initiatives at the moment. And that also brings me to kind of the heart of this issue, which is that cybersecurity is a people problem. Given the talent shortage here, uh, the cybersecurity talent shortage of three plus million people, some of the best talent is overseas. Uh, And some of the best talent may be working at these other companies. Uh, And so given that we currently have a ban of U.S. government cyber professionals going abroad, will this protectionism, um, both with our internal talent, within internal organizations, within government contracts, prevent high talent individuals from coming to the states entirely uh, is something that I think about, especially given how international the security research community and the uh, hacker community is. On that, you know, what's the appeal? You know, you are talking about U.S. talent going abroad right? Or is it just people not coming to the US? Sorry, I'm maybe not. Maybe I misunderstood. That's a good clarifying question. The hacker community is quite international. And cybersecurity is an international problem. As the internet gets more balkanized, as the US starts restricting technologies towards certain countries, restricting talent towards those countries. Um, like I said before, the DOJ has a not a total ban, but a certain number of years that U.S. former intelligence community professionals have to uh, work domestically before they can go to any uh, foreign company if they did cybersecurity. It begs the question, how, if we're not currently doing enough to fill the shortage with domestic talent, how are we going to solve this shortage and continue to have both the offensive and defensive talent that we need to actually fill these government contracts and to continue to build towards this shortage. Ultimately, the cybersecurity talent shortage is going to impact offensive security talent as well as defensive security talent. And given these protectionist measures, the U.S. needs to either figure out how to solve the shortage of workers domestically by boosting education of cybersecurity Um, and proper training measures to build up the talented professionals that we desperately need, both on the defense and the offense, or we need to start opening our doors to the potential of high-talent individuals from overseas to come to the United States and work with us to both defend and provide these sorts of services. So, Winona, before we conclude, is there anything else you would like to add? I think... I'm really, really excited to see what the State Department is going to do over the next couple of days at the Summit of Democracies. And I, again, want to 
absolutely shout out to the civil society organizations and the technology companies and the researchers who are truly at the heart of this problem. Without these pushes over the last decade, none of this would have been possible. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, a day after we recorded this conversation, during the Summit for Democracy, a series of initiatives related to commercial spyware were announced. To address how this changes her assessment of the executive order and its impact, we asked Winona to come back and provide a quick update. So Winona, thank you so much for joining us again. And can you just tell us what happened yesterday? Yeah, sure, Eugenia. I guess the biggest concern I had about the executive order was the lack of multilateralism. And I clearly spoke too soon. (laughs) Among all of the technology-related initiatives released during the Summit for Democracy, there were two primary ones uh, around spyware. So the first is that the State Department, with 11 other countries, just released the joint statement on efforts to counter the proliferation of spyware. Um, Some of the principles include robust guardrails, preventing the export of software to bad end users, and conducting more information sharing on the threat. The next new initiative is a multilateral strengthening of existing export control principles, um, basically a code of conduct that the State Department has released, and 23 other countries have endorsed this. So we touched upon the export controls previously, uh, and this expands the definition of end use and abuse, and will likely expand the number of entities that commerce may deem as abusive uh, spyware end clients, or uh, allow other countries to also do the same. And then the Code of Conduct also makes a lovely uh, reference to the need for private sectors, meaning offensive vendors, to conduct due diligence. And this is another nod back to the executive order. Okay, so that's that's a lot. Um, So how does this change your perspective on the initiative that we discussed uh, the other day, if at all? Sure. So. Fundamentally, none of the more egregious spyware users like Hungary or spyware hubs like Israel and Cyprus are on any of the signatories or endorsers, but far more countries have signed on to more general guiding principles around spyware as well. So this is clearly just the beginning. And so these two initiatives combined with the executive order and previous efforts to combat the spyware industry do send a powerful signal to providers to start cleaning up their acts. Of course, the U.S. may still need to figure out domestic innovation concerns, uh, may need to find creative ways to get more of those concerning countries on board. And we also haven't seen whether other countries will actually limit their acquisition processes like the EO. But this is an unprecedented step in the right direction. Winona, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>